you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation, chapter number one. Revelation chapter number one, beginning in verse number nine. This is our second installment in the book of Revelation. We're going to finish the first chapter this morning. There'll be parts of this chapter that we'll not be able to treat as thoroughly as I would like for time's sake, but the themes that occur within those verses we'll have the opportunity to revisit in the weeks that, Lord willing, are to come. This passage is, in my estimation, and I think in the est estimation of most, a critically important passage in the book of Revelation. This is a passage that describes John's first vision. Now, chapter 1 began by noting that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave John to show his servants, and these verses represent the first glimpse of the glory of our Savior Jesus received by John, the beloved disciple. Now, in apocalyptic literature, which is what the book of Revelation is, the first vision or the inaugural vision is of critical importance. If you remember back in the dark ages when we used to use maps, some of y'all will remember that, down in, in the bottom corner or a top corner, there would be a map key. And in order to be able to read the map, you had to look to the map key to know what the various symbols on the map were intended to indicate. In apocalyptic literature, the inaugural vision is the map key. I said to you last week, if you have the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit in your heart, you have all of the resources you need to rightly divide the word of the book of Revelation. Let me give you some methodological tips in addition to that. As the Spirit of God is guiding you and discerning the truth of God's word, here are three factors in your understanding of the book of Revelation. One, it is really important to understand some historical context and background. We're going to learn the inaugural vision this morning, and that's going to inform the way we read the rest of the book of Revelation, but there are some symbols and images in the book not accounted for in the inaugural vision that are made sense of by the historical context into which the book itself is being written. So if you understand historical context, you're going to be greatly helped in understanding the book. Secondly, the book of Revelation, as much as any book in the Bible, leverages the teaching of the Old Testament in communicating its message. In other words, a brief appeal to an Old Testament passage can import a world of meaning and message from the Old Testament. We're going to see a bit of that this morning. And then thirdly, if you understand that initial vision or inaugural vision, if you've got those three things, historical background, the way the text uses the Old Testament, and the inaugural vision then all of those mysterious elements in the book go away and become crystal clear for us. It really will become just that clear. Historical context, the use of the Old Testament, and the inaugural vision, and all of the keys have been afforded you in navigating the roadmap that is the book of Revelation. So that's where we're going to dive in here this morning. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 9. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, 
was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you've seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The struggle for me in the presentation, the preaching part of the message, the fun in preaching is the preparation. The struggle in the presentation is balancing, finding the kind of rhythm or cadence in preaching that I like to maintain. And at the same time, connecting the dots interpretively so that you don't think I'm just pulling things out of thin air. So there are going to be some times along the way when you just got to bear with the absence of the kind of rhythm and cadence that often appeals to our listening and just wade through some of the minutiae of our passage so that as we land at conclusions and applications, we can know that we're landing on safe biblical ground. John is essentially answering three questions, three questions that I think loom large over the whole book of Revelation and are answered in part here in this initial vision. In verse 12 of our passage, John said, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. John is in the moment unaware of who it is who, who's speaking, whose voice booms like the sounding of a trumpet. And the vision answers the question of, of who he is. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, do a little spoiler here and let you know that he's Jesus. But the vision has much more to say than just plainly he is Jesus. The second question answered by this vision is where he's at. In the throes of our suffering, in our agony, under persecution, where is Jesus? And the third question flows from the second. Wherever he is, what is it that he is doing? How or in what ways is the Lord moving to alleviate the agony we may find ourselves in? What is Jesus doing where he is for us in light of who he is, Revelation 1.9. John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. Now, he's identified with his congregants, the parishioners of those seven churches. He is their brother. He is their partner in the work of ministry. 
But there's more that's said here. In fact, it's a power-packed introduction in verse 9. We are brothers and we are partners in tribulation, in kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. In other words, John says there is tribulation in Jesus. Jesus endured or suffered tribulation over the duration of his life. We should anticipate the same for us. This idea that the Christian life is free of any difficulty or hardship is foreign to the teaching of the New Testament. The Bible tells us that on Paul's second missionary journey, his sermon for encouraging the church was this. Through much suffering and tribulation must you enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know where or at what point it became prevalent to say within the context of the church that we are in any way, shape, form, or fashion going to be exempted from tribulation. But I'm convinced we do not find this notion anywhere in the teaching of the Bible. In fact, John says here that what we find in Jesus often is just that, tribulation. We are partners and brothers in Jesus, and this means for us tribulation, but it also means for us kingdom. We, as people from a variety of backgrounds, with all sorts of interests, with different social backgrounds, economic backgrounds, in certain cases from different ethnic backgrounds, from different national backgrounds, with different languages, we, as the people of God, are being drawn together, people of every tongue, tribe, nation, ethnicity, and socioeconomic background, are being established a kingdom of priests unto our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, tribulation comes with Jesus, but the upshot is we get a community with which to identify. One of the great blessings of serving among the nations is the realization that walking into a room of other believers, you may have never seen them before. Some of you have experienced this. You can be on the other side of the world and walk into a room with other people who love Jesus and there is an automatic and immediate sense of kinship that exists between you and them through the language barriers, through the cultural barriers, through all the challenges that exist between you and there, there is a connection that exists in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there is tribulation, but there is kingdom. And thirdly, John says, there is endurance. All you need to persevere in the face of hardship all you need to persevere under persecution, all you need to overcome the waxing cold of religious indifference and apathy is found in Jesus Christ. As much as any other passage in the Bible, these verses invite us to simply look at Jesus as he's depicted in verses 12 and 18 and be smitten with who he is. My prayer is that you as believers would behold the majesty of Jesus and may the hearts of the saints be refreshed as you do. And for those of you who may be here as unbelievers or without a real connection or commitment to Jesus, that you would see Jesus as irresistibly beautiful in his majesty and taste and see eternally that indeed he is good. Tribulation, kingdom and endurance are in Jesus and John becomes an, an example of this in our passage. He says, I was on the island of Patmos 
for my testimony about Jesus and the word of God. In other words, John was exiled. John was banished to the island of Patmos. And he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit in spite of his banishment, in spite of the circumstances of his life, on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, on that day that has been the day of worship since the resurrection of Jesus to commemorate his resurrection from the dead. John says, I was in raptured all. And I, I heard the sound of a great trumpet, a voice like the sound of a great trumpet. The voice said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he said in verse 12, I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. Now, this is the beginning of the vision. And I don't want you to miss that the vision is about beholding Jesus. And this is where we're going to wade into some minutia so that we're understanding well the vision. And then perhaps at the end of the minutia, we'll circle back and read again and read afresh this vision and seek with eyes of faith to behold our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says in the conclusion of verse 12, when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the son of man. We don't have to guess about what the lampstands mean. We're given this information in verse 20 of our passage. The seven lampstands, the Bible says, are the seven churches. But the simple imagery of lampstands brings to mind some symbolism and imagery of the Old Testament. In other words, John doesn't choose the language here haphazardly. It seems to have reference to the lampstand in Zechariah chapter 4. A lampstand that is fed by or fueled by these olive trees representative of the pouring out of God's anointing through the Holy Spirit. The lampstand burns in the temple perpetually as a reminder of God's ongoing presence with his people. This is the message of Zechariah chapter 4. In fact, Zechariah comes along at a point in time in Israel's history when Israel is struggling to rebuild the temple. They've been in Babylonian exile. They've been in captivity. They've now been released and returned to the city, and they've begun to restore the temple. And in many cases, they have restored their homes, but they've grown weary in the well-doing of bringing the temple project to completion. Haggai prophesies at the same time and condemns them because they dwell in paneled houses, but the house of the Lord lies in ruins. They focused on the construction of their personal residences to the neglect of the construction of the temple. Zechariah comes along and through the imagery of Zechariah chapter 4, notes for them that you will not bring this project to completion by determination or self-will. In fact, the exact quote is that it's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It's very illusion. The idea of a lampstand here is a reminder of that passage and perhaps a not so subtle invitation to those of Asia Minor that they would remember that their endurance under persecution would not be the product of their self-will or determination, but the abiding presence of God's Holy Spirit among them. In order for you to endure, in order for me to endure, we are entirely, exclusively reliant on the work of God's Holy Spirit through us. John says, I turned and saw seven golden lampstands. 
and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. In all likelihood, you recognized upon our initial reading the language of Son of Man as Jesus, because it's Jesus' favorite description of himself in the Gospels. But before Jesus employed the language of Son of Man for himself, Daniel spoke prophetically of the Son of Man who was to come. In fact, the Son of Man passages in Daniel's prophecy provide all of the imagery that, da that John is going to use in Revelation chapter 1. Now there's enough here that what I'd like you to do is just turn back in your Bibles for just a moment and I want us to see this together. Daniel chapter number 7. Daniel chapter 7. While you're turning there, I'll give you a summary of the initial verses of Daniel 7. Daniel receives a vision and a dream and in that vision there are four great beasts. They're kind of mysterious beast, maybe a little confounding as you're reading through those passages, but the essence of those beasts is that they represent the four great kingdoms of the world. In fact, Daniel is so precise, he identifies the kingdom at one point, the kingdoms at one point in his prophecy, noting that the first beast is Babylon, the second beast is the Medes and the Persians, the third beast are the Greeks, and the fourth beast is the Roman Empire. The four great empires of the world are identified in Daniel's prophecy. At the end of that fourth great kingdom, there is a troublesome king who raises himself up and who speaks boastfully, arrogantly. He seeks to change the times or seasons. In other words, his effort is to supplant the God of heaven. God intervenes in verse 9 of Daniel 7. And Daniel says, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. Eventually, verse 11 tells us that the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. The Ancient of Days overcomes the kingdoms of this world. But the vision continues in verse 13. Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, for just a moment, slide into the sandals of a Jew in antiquity before the time of Christ. You have understood for all of your life the Lord our God, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now you have the ancient of days, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I'm convinced even within an Old, when an Old Testament context, there's an understanding of the persons of the Trinity. But never so clear, perhaps, as what we find in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, there were struggles among ancient Jews to understand who exactly the Son of Man was. And some understood him to be a representative figure for the whole of the nation of Israel. In other words, they said, on the last day or in the latter times, Israel, the faithful of God, are going to rule over all the world under the direct lordship of the Ancient of Days, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But John makes it abundantly clear. 
that there is equality in essence. There is one that exists between the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days as they're described. Because John takes the Ancient of Days imagery, clearly a reference to God, and the Son of Man imagery that confounded Jews in Daniel's day and applies them both to Jesus. This is what Jesus says in his earthly ministry, I and the Father are one. This reference to one like the Son of Man and virtually all of the imagery of verses 12 and following are an indicator to us of the divinity of Jesus that in fact, Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God, the bright radiance of God who was before time, the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is our Lord and our God. The Son of Man imagery continues in Daniel as well. In fact, in chapter 10, in verse number 5, this glorious one is envisioned by Daniel where the Bible says, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold around his waist, his body like topaz, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Sound familiar to you? This is the imagery that John is using in Revelation chapter 1. And the fascinating thing about the way the imagery is employed in Revelation 1 is that not only does it assign divinity to Jesus, it calls to mind this promise of one like the Son of Man who comes in the last days to deliver us from persecution and oppression and all that has pained us and agonized us for so long. In fact, Daniel chapter 10, from which much of the imagery of Revelation 1 is, is, ref, is drawn, is the beginning of a section that culminates in chapter 12. And the message here is this. You may be killed for your faith, but one like the Son of Man will intervene on your behalf. And even at your physical death, there is the promise of resurrection. You will be raised to life again. 12.2 says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is the concluding exhortation of Daniel. L lest you slip into the misunderstanding of Daniel's message that suggests that only when God closes the mouths of lions in the lion's den is God truly delivering. Or that only when one like the Son of Man comes to join you in the fiery furnace is God's delivering. Even in death, even in death, it's not just in the lion's den example or just in the fiery furnace example, but even in death, God is delivering us from the hands of our persecutors. One like the Son of Man intervenes and is the guarantee of our resurrection from the dead. All of this is imported into our passage with the simple reference, one like the Son of Man. John says, I turn and I saw seven gold lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Remember our questions? Who is he? Where is he? What's he doing? first two have already been answered in part. He is Jesus. He is one like the Son of Man. The one Daniel promised would come in the latter days to alleviate all of our hurts and our pains. To be for us all we need, our Lord and our Savior. And where is he? He's in the midst of his church. 
Now I got to tell you, now we, we, we'll mention this a number of times along the way, but the idea, the principle that it had to mean something to the churches of Asia Minor before it can mean anything to us. I can think of no more comforting message for Christians who are suffering because of their faith than to know that Jesus is with them and among them. And even here this morning, as we are gathered to worship him in spirit and in truth, our most honored guest is not someone that shows up for the first time. Our most honored guest is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And even unseen to us, he walks in our midst, trimming our lampstand, attending to all our needs according to his riches in glory. This is our Lord and Savior. This is where he is. And in part, this is what he's up to. Not only does John say, I saw one walking in the midst of those seven golden lampstands. He, he, he describes the garments of the one like the son of man. He's clothed in a robe down to his feet with a golden sash about his chest. The idea of Jesus being clothed here, one like the son of man here, clothed in this long robe is symbolic or representative of his priestly work. He is dressed as a priest. Now that's contributed to by the reality that this is itself a temple scene. The lampstand, the light of presence was a feature within the temple. And here Jesus is in priestly garb in the temple, trimming and attending to the lamp or the lampstands themselves. This is a scene or image that derives from the temple. And he's there dressed as a priest. Now the message is pretty straightforward. Jesus is our great high priest. He is there interceding for us. He is there attending to our needs. He is there molding and making and shaping us, refining us into the image and likeness even of himself. Jesus is there making application of his own sinless blood, advocating for us before the Father. He is indeed our great high priest. He's also king. The idea of a golden sash about his breast is symbolic of such. Kings would wear such a garment. Jesus is not just a priest in our passage. He is the priest king dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. Now, the interesting thing here is that Israel had a long and, and quite undistinguished history with kings, right? Right? There was a time in Israel's history when they asked God for a king. In fact, Judges sort of sets us up for that. It says that in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. In the very next episode of Israel's history, they say, God, give us a king like the other nations. And God does. And he gives them Saul, who, who met the prototype for kingship established by neighboring nations. If you were just having a beauty contest for kings, Saul would have won. Head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was He was handsome. And, and yet he led Israel foolishly, and the Spirit of God departed from him. After Saul, there was David, a man after God's own heart, and it seemed that things would look better or brighter for Israel. But then there's that Bathsheba incident. David should have been out to battle and was atop the palace and gazed upon Bathsheba, resulting in adultery and ult ultimately in a conspiracy to murder. And then there was Solomon. 
And Solomon really gets off on a good foot. The borders, the boundaries of Israel are broader in Solomon's day than in any other time in Israel's history. It is an unmatched season of prosperity for the people of Israel. The temple is constructed in those days. By today's standards, a more than $2 billion project constructing the temple of God. When Solomon stands to dedicate by prayer the temple, the glory cloud of God comes down. It is a remarkable season in Israel's history. And then Solomon has an issue with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And 700 wives can be quite the problem. And so can 300 concubines. King by king by king, things just get worse and worse. In fact, after Solomon, under Rehoboam, the kingdom splits. And now we have Israel in the north and Judea in the south. And Israel can never manage to get it right. They're cut off from true worship in Jerusalem. And consequently, God sends the Assyrians in 722 to carry them away. Israel as a nation is, for all intents and purposes, annihilated. Judea in the south persists in their idolatry. And over the course of time, God grows weary with their disobedience and sends the Babylonians to carry them away captive. The kingship only led to disaster for the people of Israel. What's fascinating is that Israel had even had some experience with the priest king. In 167, there's a priest named Mattathias. He and his five sons gathered together an army, and they actually conquered the occupying Greek forces and ran them out. Israel enjoyed liberty for a brief season under the leadership of Mattathias the priest and his sons after. This is celebrated at Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of of lights, but that priest kingship wound up being a disaster in the end. This became the new line of kings in Israel because Mattathias and his sons won the independence of Israel. They became the kings, and because Mattathias had history as a priest, it was a priest kingship, and it was a phenomenal catastrophe in Israel. But here Jesus comes. Not only to be the king Israel had always anticipated or longed to have, but the priest king who would both rule over all their needs and attend to them tenderly as their great high priest, interceding on their behalf, addressing all their wounds and ministering to all their needs. I looked and among the seven lampstands, John says, was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe with a gold sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. These seem to indicate a heavenly origin, that he doesn't come from around here. This white hair, white as snow, and fiery eyes. His head white like wool. This seems to indicate holiness absolute sinless perfection. Verse 15, the Bible says his feet were like fine bronze as if fired in a furnace and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. The idea of having bronze feet, fired bronze feet, speaks to the immovability of Jesus. He would not be pushed around. The emperors of the time would not move him, push him. He would not succumb to their power or their might. The interesting thing is that during this period of Roman history, emperors who had recently conquered a, a people 
would be represented by statue in the city of Rome with their foot atop the backs of whoever it was they had recently crushed or put down. The enemy is always pictured in this much smaller form so that it looks like child abuse in statue form. The emperor will have his foot atop the back of this much smaller person. It's actually not a child being featured in those statues. It is an enemy of the Roman Empire and the statue itself is to celebrate the conquering power of that emperor. But Jesus would not be conquered by imperial forces. Jesus would not succumb to the power or petty authority of Domitian. In fact, all of his enemies would be crushed under his feet. And the idea of his feet made of bronze fired in a furnace speaks to the refining power of fire and the perfect morality of Jesus. Jesus Jesus doesn't cut down in an act of immoral violence. Rather, his enemies will succumb to his absolute authority, even as he maintains his perfect righteousness. Verse 16, the Bible says he had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at midday. Like the lampstands, we don't have to guess about the stars. Stars are defined for us in verse 20. They are the angels of the seven churches. The challenge is how we understand the angels. Because the Greek word angelos, from which we get our English word angel, is the same word for messenger. So the question is, is John representing Jesus holding seven guardian angels over the churches of Asia Minor in his right hand? Or is John depicting Jesus holding the seven pastors, preachers, bishops, elders, messengers of those seven churches in his right hand? And the answer to that question is yes. The great thing about apocalyptic imagery is that it has a certain measure of flexibility. That doesn't mean you get to say it means anything that you want it to mean, but within the bounds of reason, as the author is pleased to use it within a given text, it may have sort of a, a, a mixing and mingling of meaning. What John is describing, however you understand the angels or the messengers here, is a situation in which Jesus has the church in his hand. Not only is he walking in the midst of the lampstand, not only is Jesus at church, Jesus has the church in his hand. The seven stars are in his strong hand. He is Lord of all and protector of all his people. From his mouth protrudes a sharp double-edged sword. This is the first indication of a very, very important message in the book of Revelation. This sword that comes forth from Jesus' mouth speaks of the judgment Jesus will pass on the last day by the word of his mouth. But in some ways, we are to pattern after the judgment of Jesus by the word of his mouth. Our warfare, our battle, is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities of the air. And the weapons of our warfare are not worldly or carnal, they are spiritual. The sword of our mouth is the message of the gospel which foretells the judgment of the last day. 
Because your response and my response to the message of the gospel is no more than a foreshadowing of the judgment Jesus will pass on that last day. In other words, how you respond or do not respond to the preaching of the gospel will determine even now how judgment will be rendered with regard to your life. We are not actively engaging in a real, literal military battle. That is not the way the kingdom moves forward. Revelation is clear. The kingdom does not move forward at the tip of the spear or the edge of the sword, but by the confession of our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus died on the cross for the confession that he was the king of the Jews. He is one with the Father. By identifying with God and the mission of the Father, Jesus was condemned to the cross. We are invited in this great book that by identifying with Jesus and the mission of our Savior, even if it means laying down our life, we will persist as faithful witnesses. Seven stars in his right hand and a sharp sword coming from his mouth. Listen to the last line of verse 16. And his face shining like the sun at midday. Now here's what you may have missed. Until this point in the vision, all has been dark. It's a temple scene. Jesus is in the temple walking in the midst of the lampstand. But the lampstand itself is indicative of darkness. And the angels or the pastors of the churches are referenced here as stars, which are seen by night and not by day. It is dark. Here is the temple of God. In the midst of the darkness of this world. And then John gazes upon the face of our Savior Jesus. That glows with glory as the sun at midday. Jesus in the midst of the temple. In the midst of a dark and crooked generation. Is casting forth by his glory the light of the gospel. And you and I are invited as participants in this singular lampstand to be a city set on a hill, salt and light to the world around us, to be participants in the casting forth of the light of the gospel, beating back the darkness of the world about us. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last And the living one, I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is sort of a standard experience for a prophet. He receives a vision. The vision is so overwhelming, he often collapses. This is a pattern established in the Old Testament. What is unique to John's experience is that he describes himself as being like a dead man. But that observation provides a perfect contrast for Jesus to point out, by the way, John, I was dead, but I'm alive and I will live forevermore. And in that simple observation concerning his eternality and the holding forth of the promise that even upon our death, we will live again in Jesus. Jesus conveys all the hope we need to persevere in the face of great opposition. Face of Jesus shining forth. One who is dead, but who lives, the living one who holds the keys of death in Hades. Now, I want to just briefly, before we move away from the passage, and I know our time is up, 
show you a few ways that this vision informs the rest of the book and how we understand certain passages. Now, some of them are quite obvious. You probably wouldn't need the help to understand the passage rightly. But in many cases, there can be some clarity in the midst of confusion provided when we connect these verses to what is to come. Look, for instance, at chapter 2 and verse 1. John says, writing to the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Chapter 3. Verse 1, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says. In chapter 3 and verse 14, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says. All of these are references to what we just unpacked in Revelation chapter 1 and that initial vision. Now, those are examples that you could probably wade through and make a great deal of sense of even in the absence of the kind of insight that we've tried to draw or make sense of in the time that we've had together this morning. But I want to show you an example where that might not be the case. Look at chapter 19 and verse 14. This is that passage where heaven is open. There's a rider on a white horse called Faithful and True. Jesus is going out on a white horse to save the day. Verse 14 tells us that the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. Sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. Now notice that the armies of heaven that followed Jesus on their own white horses are wearing white linen. It's the very terminology that John uses to describe the priestly linens of Jesus in the image of chapter 1. So as the host of army of heaven's army go out behind Jesus, they're not going out to fight a traditional war. In fact, they're not going out to fight the kind of war we ever envision when we think about war. They're going out functioning in a priestly manner, aiding as angelic figures in the advancement of the kingdom, not at the tip of the spear, not at the edge of the sword, but by the public proclamation of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's my message to you this morning. The kingdom goes forward through the faithful witness of God's people. And even when that means embarrassment or oppression or outright persecution or in rare instances, martyrdom, that's okay for us because even this life taken away, God will give back on the last day. And in the midst of our tribulation, tribulation that is in Jesus, he walks in the midst of his church as our great high priest, lording over the details of our life and tending to any need whatsoever that might arise for us. This is our Savior. Who is he? He's Jesus. And where is he? He's in our midst. And what's he doing? He's tending to our every need. He is worthy of all worship and praise. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and for these moments to spend together reflecting on your son, Jesus. I do pray, God, that as we have looked with eyes of faith toward your son, that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. God, I pray for those who don't know you, you give them eyes to see the irresistible and majestic beauty of your son, Jesus. Grant them the gift of faith that they might come. May Jesus be worshipped. We ask it in his name.